I'm honored to be in the studio with Daniel Johnson today. Daniel is an Army veteran and a PhD student at the Hussman School of Journalism at UNC Chapel Hill. He joined the North Carolina National Guard in 2010 and commissioned as an Army Infantry Officer in 2014, serving in multiple roles before getting out of the Army uh, in 2019. However, his role as an Army journalist in Iraq shaped his path to writing articles concerning military issues for news sources such as Task and Purpose, The New York Times, and Slate. Some problems he has identified regarding military mental health resources have led to an amendment to the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which will change how every military installation in the country provides mental health information to members of the armed forces. Welcome to the show, Daniel. It's a pleasure to chat with you today and discuss your experiences. Thanks for having me on the show, Aaron. I appreciate it. Absolutely. How's your summer been? I would say it's been busy. Uh, yeah. But two weeks, well, now I'm two weeks, 11 days left to go. So just today I was working on the PowerPoints and slides. Oh, yeah. For the semester, trying yeah. to get ahead of um, basically trying to prepare, make sure all my lesson plans are ready before the semester starts. But also know that as soon as the semester begins, it's probably all got to go out the window. But yeah. I always used to hate those professors who would walk in, you know, the day of class and say, I just came out with it this morning. Well, <laughs> you know, that's Absolutely. so I try to prepare for that, but that's taking up most of my time. But I'm excited, yeah, you know, to get that started. And so you're not only a student, you're you're teaching classes uh, at the school. Yeah. journalism. Too. Yep. And I'll be the first class on the first day for everyone on Monday, Mondays and Wednesdays at eight o'clock. What classes do you teach this semester? Um, intro to journalism. So okay. basically it's the um, basic skills course for all journalism students in the Hussman School. Okay. And you teach them the basis of writing, of um, uh, the Associated Press style. We don't teach them how to take photos, thank goodness. But, you know, grammar and all that stuff. So it's almost like a writing slash communication class. And then from there, they go on to like public public relations classes or they go to like other journalism classes. Okay. Very good. So you're teaching the intro. Any other classes? Oh, no. Just that. Just the intro. Just, That's and, probably enough. Yeah. yeah. Especially when taking uh, three other classes in the graduate school, which is... <laughs> Well, I mean, it could be four, but, you know, (laughs) so I think that's, you know, being a student and a teacher at the same time, just balancing that. Mm -hmm. It's got to be the harder part this semester. Were you teaching last in last year as well? No, I was a teaching assistant. So the class I'm teaching this year is I was a TA four for about a year, year and a half. Okay, so So now you're an adjunct professor. Is that? Yeah, it's it's weird. It's basically an adjunct, but. Underpaid adjunct, but yeah, for the PhD program, all the PhD students have to be a professor record for at least one, uh, two classes during, uh, during the program. Okay, so the basically half is teach journalism or media ethics or public relations, depending on their background. So something we all have to do. Got it. So the school gets extra adjuncts, and then we get the experience that helps us with our resumes and stuff. You know, going forward to yeah. other institutions. Yeah. Uh, could you tell me more about your experience while serving in the Army uh, in, in the infantry? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the Sigma Corps. But, um, so I commissioned from Appalachian State University in Western North Carolina, one of the finest institutions in the nation, I say. I do love <laughs> I do love ASU. Yeah. It's a great school. And Boone is a beautiful yeah. place. It's, I still, people say Chapel Hill's the most beautiful place, campus in the state. I disagree. I mean, it's up there. I think it's second. Okay, maybe it's high with um, Appalachia State because I know some people would be really mad about that. If I bring them up at school, people, oh, how dare you? But um, I went there and I studied criminal justice. I graduated there in 2013. And then 
from the RGC Program Commission as an infantry officer. Uh, and my first duty station was Fort Campbell. Um, I was an English major at first, and then I hated writing, ironically. So that's why I went to criminal justice and then, you know, combat arms. And then when I was at Fort Campbell, uh, when my unit was deploying to Iraq in 2016 to fight ISIS, their public public affairs soldier or journalist, she was thinking about leaving the army so she couldn't go. Uh, I wasn't going to get sent to Iraq at first because, you know, it was a force cap in a small mission set since we were doing more advice and assisting. So I volunteered. I said, well, I could be the brigade journalist. And then for some reason, the brigade PEO, my commander said yes. I still don't know why, but that's how I got involved in a public affairs uh, role. And then when I was in Iraq, you know, I did, you know, the shake and greet. I forgot what to call it, like the... Uh, the high level undersecretary to army visits, generals, yeah. all that stuff, you know, the grab and grin, the grab yeah, and grins. Grab and grins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> lots of photo ops, yeah. lots of interviews, maybe yeah. things like that. And then, you know, basically saying, what are our, what are our guys doing? Some of it was, we're doing good to great, but also got to cover the other operations such as, you know, the advice and assist efforts with the Iraqi security forces and the, combat not combat i mean it's they didn't want to call it combat but i still don't know what to call it but uh, that with the artillery men in our unit uh, infantry men and other elements all throughout iraq yeah and that's um that's how i really that's what started all my led to the platform you know right now on mental health today because yeah. of all the stuff that the soldiers experienced while we were there and the stuff they were telling me but also the difficulties with writing about that because you know military public affairs it's you're hoping to put out a positive image on of the army or the navy or something like that right, right so sometimes the objectives are at odds with you know you want to help the soldiers or publicize what they're doing and hopefully lead to some change so that's that was kind of the first step that kind of led to my separation from the military among other things yeah um about that in the slate article you wrote earlier this year <clears throat> The artillery unit that you're um, with in, in Iraq um, launched several thousand shells. I think you mentioned 6,000 shells during their nine-month deployment, uh, which led many to your unit uh, to incur noticeable concussions and obvious you know, TBIs due to the uh, blast overpressure. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what you wrote in this article and how it's affected the unit that you worked with? Um, I would say... So once we got back from Iraq, uh, so, the, so once we got back from Iraq, even though the deployment was not a, what they considered a combat deployment, we started having multiple suicides or multiple deaths throughout the brigade. So we had, I think, two or three, in like the first six, the first like six or seven months we were back. One of them was an artilleryman from an artillery battery. Um, he killed himself. Three months after we got back, I think it was in March or April. That was the first death. And then we also had a whole lot of behavioral health issues throughout throughout the brigade. And it just, I noticed something was wrong. That's the best way to put it. Uh, and then I went for mental health treatment myself around the same time. But one of the symptoms I was experiencing was headaches. I had a, I had a whole lot of really bad headaches, started in Iraq, and then when I got home, and then couldn't tell if that was from stress or if that was something physical. Um, 
about two, three years, years later when I was here at UNC doing studies on like military suicide and military mental health, I found a report by the United States Marine Corps that was done in 2019 about artillery blast over pressure. So there was an artillery unit in Syria uh, at about 2017 that deployed, they were part of a Marine Expeditionary Unit that deployed to Syria and they fired, they said about 20,000 plus rounds or more. But uh, one of the things that happened was that a lot of those guys started suffering multiple concussions. When I talked to some of them, like they were bleeding from the ears, guys are getting knocked out, all this crazy stuff. And the Marine Corps was concerned because it was making them combat ineffective. So the Marine Corps did this report, this whole medical report. And what they found was that at the rate that the Marines were firing or any like near peer conflict, artillery batteries should basically shoot themselves out of commission for the couple of months. And they wanted to have enough people to like replace the personnel. Yeah. But they did nothing with it. It wasn't released widely. No one really talked about it. Nothing was really done. And when I saw that, I, um, and then the, when Joshua James, who was part of my unit's deployment, uh, he died by suicide November 15th of last year. Uh, after that happened, I felt like this TBIs or, you know, that had a role to play. I don't know if it was yeah. the whole role. I don't know if it was like the only reason, but it just seemed, un- it didn't seem, it seemed unnatural that when we talk about PTSD, we talk about combat exposure, we talk about dead bodies, we talk about fear being killed and all that stuff. But that wasn't matching up with what was happening to those guys because you think artillerymen, they're safe, right? Or they're safer and further away from combat, and yet they were uh, developing, you know, a variety of mental health issues. So something was obviously wrong. So there was a trend. Yeah, there's a trend. I mean, yeah. out of his, uh, his section, I talked to most of them. Half of them have um, either PTSD symptoms or other mental health symptoms. Yeah. Uh, an I main unit. I mean, most of them are in their now <laughs> late 20s but they were yeah. in their early 20s and that's not natural for people that young to put up all those issues all around the same time all after the same deployment yeah and you said it was a nine-man unit yeah the the artillery section so basically um artillery batteries have about six guns uh each gun has a section so smaller than like a infantry company it's like 60 60 to 80 personnel depending but among that small unit, you know, if you look at a per capita suicide rate, two suicides around 70 people is really high, especially when it happens in the span of a few years. Yeah. Especially when it happens with people, you know, within the same section or platoon, which is even smaller. Yeah. And that's why I pitched the article to Slate looking at the TBI issue because I, you know, I wanted to learn more about it. What, how did these TBIs occur? After the Marine Corps report, which was pretty dire by like any standard, what was being done, and then what are possible solutions? And when I spoke to the Pentagon about it, um, they're working on it. I mean, that's the best way to put it. They're working on it, but there's a lot of um, this issues. This issues with um, you know, life of time is taken to work on the issue. There's issues with um, how soldiers and service members are evaluated for TPIs after explosive injuries. You know. There's no like set standard. It differs by the branch, so it's a it's a it's a big it's a big thing. But yeah. the important thing I think is that you know these explosive injuries also happen in training. Before artillerymen deploy, they fire hundreds of rounds in the back forty, as we call it. So you have this risk that begins before they even go to war. 
they go to war, they fire thousands of rounds or tens of thousands of rounds, and then they come back. In each TPI, you suffer, you know, increased likelihood that you suffer another one, and that'll lead to symptoms such as PTSD, depression, all that stuff. Yeah. And then there's a medical report that came out July 31st after I wrote the article that basically showed that the mortality rate for soldiers with TBIs was about two to three times higher than people who didn't suffer TBIs. They killed themselves sooner. You know, they develop uh, other comorbid uh, conditions like depression or drug use. And, you know, it's it's the visible wound, wound of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But right. the idea that it's self-inflicted, I think, is something that hasn't been talked about more fully until literally this year, just recently. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. <clears throat> And you mentioned after you returned from Iraq, you eventually sought care with mental health at your command. Can you tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, how that went down? So when I came back in January 2017, and then I went in for treatment about April, May, April, May 2017. Okay. And at first, that wasn't bad. You know, I went in for behavior. I self-referred to behavioral treatment. The unit didn't have an issue. The providers were solid. Um when I first thought about going, I asked another soldier and I said, hey, you know, if I go in for I'm thinking about going for treatment. And he told me, he said, I would recommend you go all base and seek treatment. Trust me on this. I didn't listen to him, but I did get a uh, get a therapist all base. Also, while I was doing all base behavior of treatment uh, about August of that year, if I remember correctly. Yeah, August of 2017, uh, because the Captain Promotion Board was coming or the old three promotion board, Lieutenant Promotion Board for the Navy or yeah. Air Force's captain, right? I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's coming up. So, uh, you know, I was going to get promoted. I was going to PCS and I was going to go to what we call the Captain's Career Course, where I was going to switch mm-hmm. to the Signal Corps. Uh, then my, <laughs> my unit got really weird and basically they weren't trying to let me PCS because I was... Uh, going in for behavior of treatment. I, uh, you know, I, they want they're worried about a continuation of treatment. I'd say, you know, my next duty station. So I looked at the next duty station. They have behavioral specialists. You know, every base has behavioral specialists uh, that would be willing to work with me. You know, if I needed to get treatment, like why doing the signals captain career course? And I even told them, hey, I will pay out of my pocket to go seek treatment. The unit disagreed <laughs> and. I kept on asking why, why I couldn't leave. You know, I said, it. you know, I'm not suicidal, I'm not homicidal. You know, are there any issues? And the more I asked, the more they stonewalled me. And then I wrote a whole book on it. It became a whole complex issue. But at one point, my captain or my commander said, well, you know, going in for treatment, I can't see you standing in front of soldiers as a, a captain or a company commander. So basically saying because I tried to seek help, something was fundamentally wrong with me. Um, it was after that that <laughs> we were basically sparring against each other. It was a whole thing. I got a congressional investigation launched. But the congressional investigation found that the unit was colluding, literally because I talked to behavioral provider, was colluding with behavioral provider to keep me back for some reason. When the investigation came back, I went to the behavioral provider. I said, hey, the unit is blaming you for this whole situation. And they said, literally, oh, they're trying to put it on us. It was they're the ones who told us to do this, which is totally wrong for a lot of reasons, because, you know, these are not medical professionals, but they're interfering in medical issues. Yeah. And, you know, everything that it 
We were to meet from the military mental health about the military mental health system. It was just sad. I mean, it did all yeah. that for a first lieutenant in the United <clears throat> States Army to try to keep me back, but yeah. also how many other soldiers were they doing it to? I talked to other soldiers who were experiencing the same thing, and you know, it was a pattern of behavior. Yeah, and that was that really. Uh, I wouldn't say open my eyes, but that really started a process of why if you're seeking help and you go to seek help and you're doing the right thing and you know trying to be a good soldier you know seek medical help then why are you punished for it yeah and once you got out you've done a lot of uh, research you've written a lot of articles regarding mental health um, among military members and veterans um, one thing that you you researched was the disparities that exist among people of color yeah. and women in the military. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what you found uh, among those populations in the military? Yes. And sorry, let me put up yeah. that. Because you're good. You're good. Yes. So, um, so for context, 2020, when the COVID pandemic hit, military suicide rates skyrocketed by about 20 to 25 percent. I forget the exact number. But the U.S. national population, their suicide rates decreased. So something something weird was going on in 2020. Um, I was looking at the military suicide rate because I started writing for task and purpose. The first thing I wrote was, OK, it's leader's fault. Of course, I didn't go anywhere. So I said, OK, there has to be specific like issues of the military suicide, suicide rate that aren't being looked into because for years people said, well, if you look at, for years, the military would say, well, if you look at the American suicide rate and military suicide rate, they're not different when you compare them, which made no sense because how do you have like a suicide rate that's 1.7 or two times higher than the American a- national average? And then it's the same thing when you start talking about age justice suicide. It just didn't make any sense. So I said, okay, I'm going to look at the demographic data and see if there's any differences. Maybe I said, maybe the military is right. Maybe I'm missing something. So I try to look at the demographic data and I think the 2019, it just didn't happen. It, for women, it just didn't happen. So I said, okay, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why do men, like, how can I get a per capita amount for men, but not for women? I said, this is kind of wacky. So yeah. I so I pulled up the defense manpower data and I did the calculation. I said, you know, maybe it's not that different. I just want to know because if I'm going to write about this, then I want to make sure I have all the information I didn't see in coverage. And I discovered that it's two times higher than the national average in 2019. And it actually got worse in 2020. You're talking about for military members as a whole? Yeah, for military women, members of the whole. Women, okay. women active duty had a suicide rate that's two times higher than national average. In 2021, it was like 1.8, 1.9 higher because the suicide rate decreased. For women? For women. Okay, for And women. then my, I was like, why? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why? And then... I was confused. So I was like, okay, this, I said, why aren't people talking about this? Like, this seems to be a big issue. Why is the military provided demographic data? And then I said, well, if people aren't comparing the per capita data, you know, so the biggest thing is that the military previously didn't compare the per capita suicide data to like the natural average. So they would say our per capita suicide rate is 30 per 100,000, let's say. Well, with nothing to comparison compare to, then what does that mean? Where's the context? I started comparing their suicide data to like the US national average, and that's when I started discovering the discrepancies for women. And then I said, well, you know, let me look at minority groups. So I'll look at black troops, and I discovered it was three times higher than the national average. 
no one's ever talked about that. We talk about racism in the military, we talk about systemic issues, but the fact that, you know, black service members, remember, black Americans have some of the lowest suicide rates in the nation, even though they deal with a lot of, you know, stressors, health stressors, you know, discrimination stressors. Socioeconomic. Then how come joining the military makes it three times as bad? And then I said, okay, hmm. let me track it to the veterans data. And that's when I discovered where for women, it's about two to three times higher for a veteran women. It, it affiliates and for, for black service members, it's also two times higher. And why? I mean, that's yeah. the, the question why. My first question was why? And we don't know the why yet. So mm-hmm. especially for black servicemen, if we talk about racism in the military, we talk about systemic discrimination, we talk about in the United States. What about the military specifically is making it so bad for black service members that they want to carry themselves at a much higher rate? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so logically, you could it's the military somehow more racist than like the nation. That's a high argument. I mean, that's a argument that I can't say like it's more racist than nation, but what specifically is going on in the military that's leading to this? So, yeah. you know, I think it's a variety of issues. The military has extremism problem. The military has a racism problem. You know, black service members get hit with UCMJ action more than white service members to get back on deck discharges more than black, uh, white service members. They suffer more injuries to white service members. Um, they don't get promoted as much as white service members. All this stuff is known. And then this also affects their lives as veterans, you know, right. so Absolutely. black veterans lack now, not just white service members. That's known, but they also lack white Americans in general, which you know, people say the military is good for you. It'll lead to better economic, you know, you know, uh, outcomes. And it, and it kind of does, but it still can't make up for like the systemic differences between black Americans and white Americans in general. And the VA has also had a variety of issues with that because, um, one of the issues is that VA healthcare. I know that's they're talking about it more like systemic discrimination in VA healthcare. Black veterans, when they went for their CMP exams, you know, that determine where you get benefits, they were somehow getting benefits less than white veterans, which means you don't get disability, which means you don't get treatment. Right. I mean, all this stuff matters. And the VA says it's working on it, but, it, you know, it's. It's only recently that all this stuff came out. Right. And it's only recently that there's been a little more attention on it. So I think it's still a developing question. I mean, yeah. for women, I think the biggest thing is, you know, what the military calls military sexual trauma and uh, <laughs> their lack or, you know, effort around that, which affects women when they leave the military and as veterans. Absolutely. So I think that those... I think these rates are different by systemic issues, both in the service and also within the VA. But the cause of them, I think, is I won't say it's complex because people say, well, suicide is complex. Yeah, but if you join yeah. the military and you suicide rate skyrockets, that seems pretty simple to me. So, I mean, I think there's a lot, but I think systemically the military isn't grappling with these causes. Uh, the yeah. DOD did a suicide prevention study like a year ago. They put out their findings and they said, you know, first thing we haven't changed the promotion system, but it didn't really say anything about military sexual trauma or systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And this is like a year long study with like some top people in the field. And how could you miss that? I asked when the suicide rates for these demographics are so high and it follows them when they become veterans. And right. I think that's really what needs to be understood or communicated or that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah. Like how, how can that be communicated? How can something be done? Because the situation is bad in general. Right. But then somehow it gets worse. Right. You know, for minority groups. Right. And, 
these members may only serve three, four, five years, but they have their entire life ahead of them yeah. as veterans, and they're not getting the support, or they have worse outcomes yeah. than than their peers. And for the VA, it's like to the VA last National Health Equity Report, you know, which elucidated this more was last done in 2017 based off data from 2014. So they're like really behind on this stuff. And I think that's part of the push from Congress. So the lack of information is troubling. Like <laughs> we can't fix a problem if you're telling me, well, in 2014, it was like, well, it's 2023. Where are we? You know, yeah. you know, why do black veterans end up homeless at a higher rate than white veterans? You know, <laughs> why, why do these outcomes, why aren't these outcomes tracking and why does it begin in the surface? Because the military is supposed to be a you know path to a better to the middle class, a better way of life. But somehow, if you're a woman or or black or other minority groups, because I haven't looked at other minority groups yet, but I think for Hispanic service members, there's also some um, discrepancies with uh, suicidal ideation health outcomes. Then what's happening there? Some something's wrong. Yeah, something needs to be fixed. Yeah, you also uh, wrote an article. I think it was back in 2021. <clears throat> about the civilian military divide. Yes. Uh, and I think that that is a really important topic in the lens of building communities that are healthy for veterans and their family members. Can you talk a little bit more about what you described in that article and why why do you think there is a divide among uh, civilians and military members? I think part of it is institutional by the military. When you tell... I don't think it's that people don't care about the military, but... The war in Afghanistan is a prime example. People heard for 20 years, 21 years, that things were going well, we're winning, the Afghan government is great. And then the country collapsed under a week. People were shocked. They said, well, how did this happen? Well, it happened because the reports you were getting were kind of, you know, jacked up. But that was part of the failure in the military, not communicating the reality of the situation. So I think that creates a military-civil divide. Like, So the public affairs corps is supposed to inform the American people. Well, if you're not a foreign American people about issues such as bad barracks, you know, or, you know, suicide or sexual assault, the American people can't bother their congressman and say, hey, we need to fix this. The PACT Act, John Stewart is a prime example. He brought national attention on the issue of burn pits and the fact that veterans won't get the support they needed. Mm -hmm. And then the Senate passed the law, like, just yeah. like that. Like, that's... Burn pit registry. Like, he's... He wasn't in the military. He's just a guy. People call him comedian, but the whole idea is that that's what, you know, public attention on an issue can deal. Yeah. So I think part of the failure is on the military itself because it's scary, right? You're afraid that you're right, so then the people say... Mm -hmm. what's our army out to and they call for your head but I think that's also uh, a democratic function you know the American people if reform hopefully would decide to do the right thing so I think that's part of it I think another part of it is media portrayers of the military you watch a war movie yeah. everyone comes to the army they're either you know jacked up homicidal PTSD or blown up or you know where's <laughs> the normality and I think we also Overly valorize the militaries because people think, okay, the military is perfect. Everyone's <laughs> got an eight pack, rip, <laughs> you yeah. know, puff and puff, puff. Okay, it's more complex than that. But then people are like, well, everything's perfect, you know. 
Don't want to ask questions. Why try to fix it? Because I'm here and everything's so good. Yeah. How you fix media portrayers? I don't know because I think that's a, <laughs> that's like a Hollywood issue. But the DOD yeah. works for Hollywood a lot. And one of the things I was talking about in the Slate article is that the DOD they have probably one of the largest public relations firms on the planet. Honestly, we have thousands of public affairs personnel. But if you're not communicating clearly and realistically to the American people, you can't be shocked that people are distant because they think you're walking gods or they think you're, you know, killers and we're all walking around shooting stuff every day. Yeah. And you can't blame the American people for something, for the information they're not getting. Sure. So I think that's part of the divide. Another part of the divide, of course, is more, it's becoming more and more family business, you know, what is it? 60, 70% of veterans are more are likely to suggest that their family members join the military. So at least your connection with uh, America at large is becoming, <laughs> I don't want to say like the mafia, but it's like, it's a family business, you know. Military communities are cut off from the rest of the world. Like, we're in Raleigh, we're in Durham. Most people don't even know about Fayetteville, to be honest, and it's only, what, an hour away. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think that's a, that's a big part. And I think another part is that, I don't want to, other American people blame this now. Okay, but it's hard. It's hard to. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, you know. Yeah. It's hard for people to care if they're not being told what's going on or it's not being brought to their attention because I think people do care. Yeah. They may not join the military, but I think we can all agree that veteran suicide is a problem. We can all agree that sexual assault in the military is a problem. We can agree that broken suicide prevention websites are a problem. Yeah. But are they getting that information? Are they do they have the ability to act upon it, or is there like layers of obfuscation, you know, that's stopping that from occurring? So I think it's yeah. I think I'm I'm looking more for like from the military side. I think a lot of the issue starts with them because. And uh, Admiral Kirby, <laughs> well, yeah, he's still Admiral, right? Yeah, yeah. Jack Kirby, his office actually reached out to me after I wrote the article because he said, well, we read the article and we know we're just wondering, you know, we want to hear more about your ideas. But I think it's, there's a lot more the military can do to help that it's not doing. Now, whether people listen, you can't control that. People may get all this information and yeah. say, whatever. Okay, but you tried. Yeah. But you tried. And I think... You know, it is the American people's military. Yeah. So they should have all the information they need and want about what the military is doing to make better informed decisions. That's all you can do. Yeah. As you um, go into this career of journalism, how do you think that your job as a journalist will be as a community member that can help build these veteran healthy communities or, or places where people can live, not just veteran healthy, but healthy in general. And I think you touched on this a little bit by providing coverage that yeah. of of the, the issues that veterans face. I think that might be maybe part of your answer, but uh, I, I, I don't know. What, what would you say? Absolutely, yeah. I would say that and, you know, being realistic. So coverage and also be realistic in conversations with people about the military, the good and the bad. Yeah. So um, uh, this summer I helped with like a UNC summer camp for high school journalists and students. And they came in, you know, they did like a freight press conference, but they asked me about military mental health. And I spoke about that TPIs and all that stuff. And, you know, just being honest, like, hey, good things. I had some good experience in the military, but also yeah. had a lot of the bad things happen. 
you know, I think that helps. And I think if you do have a platform, right, if some people listen to me for some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> I think that's you, but, you know, hopefully using a platform, if you, your identity is pretty important. And most people have no idea about the military at large. So if you're a veteran, fortunately, unfortunately, you're, you're a representation to a lot of people what the military is about. Yeah. You shouldn't take, you should say, I got to educate people, but just being involved in these conversations. Well, I'm in class. Okay. We talk about politics. We talk about entertainment, but you know, your experiences are important and mm-hmm. it can add to the conversation. Now, how exactly you add to the conversation, I think it's the hard part, but I think that's, that's a big part. Like, I think part of being a journalist or writing is that <laughs> writing's pretty powerful, weirdly enough. Some people aren't worth listening to, but people listen. But, you know, using that responsibly, hopefully for the greater good or hopefully to help inform people to make better decisions. Yeah. That's kind of where I see more. Other than teaching, too, you know, I think at UNC, I may be for teaching this semester. The only uh, in Hussman, you know, that served in the military. Yeah. So, I mean, I've done other stuff after that. But, you know, even talk to the students like, hey, this was a part of what I did. But. You know, I have some experiences <laughs> and I, we're not all just all crazy guys. You know, I actually want to be here. I actually want to help. It. I think it's a former service. So I think it's that if you choose to. Yeah. I think you shouldn't feel like you have to speak for everyone. You shouldn't. Because right, that's a right. lot of stress and it's exhausting. But, you know, if you want to, uh, your voice matters. And I think a lot of people feel like, well, no one's going to listen. There's more people that are going to listen than. You yeah. Think. Yeah. I think in the age of. I call it an infodemic and lots of misinformation, right? And I'm sure you're familiar with that being in the field of journalism and combating that. I think a lot of people's thought is um, there's no point in even sharing about these issues because there's so much misinformation uh, out there and, you know, who's going to believe me? Um, how How do you combat that? It's hard. So I think so stories are important or mediums, mediums that people pay attention to. Some people may not read the 10,000 word article. They may watch a 30 second TikTok video. And I think when you see, um, put your sector saw a lot of women in the military using TikTok on their social media sites to talk about their experiences and highlighted yeah. them and bringing attention to it, yeah. which is starting a conversation. Uh, you know, there's veteran like TikTok. I mean, people on social media like, they're using those media mediums that people are on to communicate about what's occurring. Mm-hmm. The military may or may not like that. They kind of hate it. But I think I think that's part of it. First, like, where are people gathering at? And then the next part is, if you want to influence, if you want to inform people, okay, uh, you have to write in a way that's interesting and, like, intriguing. The, so, misinformation, they're narratives, right? They're narratives about... If you think of QAnon, which goes back to like anti-Semitism for World War II, it's a narrative. It's a narrative that's been around for hundreds of years. You think about uh, January 6th, it's a narrative. It's a narrative that draws, goes all the way back to like the American Reconstruction and, you know, you know, fraudulent black fooling. I mean, it's hundreds of years of stuff. Yeah. The people who are putting out these, they know that. They know that if I use certain phrases, if I tell the story a certain way, there's going to be a swath of the population that's going to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you fight against that? I mean, you have to change history, but if you say want to put out something for the public good, okay, people like narratives. So I can 
I can say the suicide rate is blah, blah, blah. But if I say, hey, you know, when I talk about uh, when I wrote about Josh James or I talk about my experiences, it's it's humanizing it. Yeah. It's telling the story. You know, it's it's hopefully uh, it's hopefully for a way that people want to listen, and read. I mean, I would say someone's obviously listen if it gets to Congress and they may have been the, the grandpa down the street <laughs> read it. But I think, you know, finding a way that uh, communication method that works can yeah. also can can cut against the flow of false information because false information, something that goes fire. It's a good story. It's a good story for a lot of people. People yeah. will share it even if they know it's false. So the question is, what story do you want to share? What's the best way to put it out? What's the best way to use you know influencers like the government's trying to use influencers already did for COVID or for like military recruiting and stuff like that? But it's there's always going to be false information. You can't. You can't stop it, <laughs> but what you can do is try to, you know, put out good information in a way that's interesting to people. Yeah. In a way that people will listen to. Now, it's up to them whether they want to listen to it, but I think that's, I think, understanding why it works and then say, hey, I can do the same thing with the truth or yeah. a version of the truth, depending on who you ask. But I think that's, that's one way, that's a way to fight against Mr. I mean, you're not going to. You can't destroy 100 years of racism. But, I mean, I think you could convince some people, if that's what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to work on the margins, 5%, 1% of the population is, what, 300,000 people? I mean, stuff like that matters. Yeah. Stuff like that matters. Awesome. Well, um, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on the show. Is there anything else that you wanna wanted to add? Oh, no. I think that's really it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Appreciate chatting with you. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah. Uh, 